This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Suhini Chowdhury, and I'm Deputy CEO, Head of Research at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Today, our panelists will discuss the Foundation's landmark study, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI for short. We'll cover the study's expansion and impact, scientific results coming out of PPMI, and the critical role you can play in speeding a cure. Before diving into things, I want to take a moment to introduce our panelists. We have Dr. Ken Merrick, the President and Senior Scientist of the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disorders in New Haven, Connecticut. He's also the Principal Investigator, aka the Head Honcho, of PPMI. We also have Ray James, a Nurse Specialist in the Parkinson's Disease Movement Disorder Center at Boston University Medical Campus. He's also the PPMI Study Coordinator at our Boston University site. Jen Gaudio of New London, Connecticut, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2010. She was one of the first participants to ever enroll in PPMI at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disorders. And last but certainly not least, we have Jerry Pollack of Meridian, Idaho. He doesn't have Parkinson's, but his father, brother, and sister all did. He's a PPMI participant at our University of Washington VA Puget Sound Healthcare System site. Thank you all for joining us today and welcome to this webinar. I wanted to maybe start off before diving straight into PPMI. I wanted to start off and maybe um, talk a little bit about what it takes to accelerate science. Um, you know, living in these past two years of the pandemic, one of the silver linings out of it has been the ability to actually see what can happen and how quickly science can react to things. And I think the COVID vaccine sort of shows us the possibilities of fast science delivering impactful things into patients' hands. And so Dr. Merrick, maybe what I'll start off first is asking you, what does it take or what will it take to really um, move Parkinson's science, to get us there faster in terms of delivering in impactful therapies into patients' hands. Great. Thank you so much, Sohini, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, so I think really the, the key to moving us forward is uh, acquiring uh, sort of con convincing, reliable information or data from as many people as possible. Uh, I think one of the issues we have in Parkinson's disease is that uh, we think of this as a single entity, but it's really many different entities that everyone with Parkinson's disease is a little different. So collecting information uh, on the experience of many, many different people is extremely valuable to us uh, in order to try to understand uh, what the best ways are to move forward uh, for, for the most people. Uh, I, I think the other point here is that we need to collect uh, information in a timely way, uh, and we need it to be uh, over time. So not, not just one time, but over a period of time, because of course Parkinson's disease is a, is a disease that changes over time, and we need to understand uh, how it changes in different people. So I think that's really a key, 
uh, and you know, it's a, an area where uh, we really need the help of everybody on this call. Thank you, Ken. And I think that's a great segue then into jumping um, into exactly what PPMI is, because um, essentially PPMI really is trying to address a lot of what you just outlined um, as critical factors that would help us accelerate and, and, and get a better understanding of disease to therefore treat the disease. And so for those on the on this webinar who may not be familiar with PPMI, as I mentioned earlier, PPMI stands for the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative. And it's one of the landmark studies within MGFF's research portfolio. It was launched around 11 years ago with the goal of following individuals with and without Parkinson's disease and collecting enormous amounts of information on these individuals, um, asking them questions when they come to the site about, um, you know, um, about cognition, about motor, about balance, all sorts of things like that, about imaging their brain, um, collecting different biosamples, et cetera, all with the idea of um, really developing as much information to understand exactly what Dr. Merrick identified, to understand how does this disease progress. And we know it progresses differently for, pe for different people. So what can we sort of parse out? Like, are there are there different journeys? Are there eight different journeys? Are there more? Are there two different journeys? And how can we maybe better understand who might be on what journey um, as they as they go through Parkinson's disease? And so, it's really been um, a, a critical sort of um, a critical study to help us gain that understanding. Again, all with the idea that if you better understand the disease, you're better able to then determine is a drug having an effect on that disease. It progresses at a certain rate, and we have a drug, and we can test it. Does it stop or slow that progression? And so that's why it's been such a, a landmark study. And the exciting thing about the study is that in the past 11 years, we have seen how the study has firsthand really um, catalyzed the biopharma industry. We know that there are over 20 clinical trials that have moved into clinical testing because they've been able to utilize data coming out of PPMI to sort of gain that sense of, yes, there's something here, let's move in and let's really test our drug now with patients. And that's extremely exciting. But we are here still to talk about PPMI. So clearly our, our job with PPMI is not yet done. And so again, um, Dr. Merrick, maybe I'll, I'll go back to you. I, I referenced earlier expansion and the study expansion. And could you talk a little bit about um, what, why are we expanding the study and what do we hope to accomplish by expanding PPMI? Certainly, thank you. Uh, so just, just taking a step back, so PPMI is really uh, a study which is designed to collect information to try to understand uh, what are the determinants of disease progression, with the goal being that with this information in hand, we can accelerate therapies that would be more effective for the larger number of people. Uh, we initially uh, focused this study on individuals with Parkinson's disease, uh, but as we have expanded our uh, uh, the, the PPMI program, uh, it's, we have both been able to increase the number of individuals who we now have involved in the study with Parkinson's disease, but also uh, move uh, to, uh, to try to understand uh, what, are, what are the sort of uh, determinants of Parkinson's disease before it begins. So that is to say individuals who don't yet have Parkinson's disease, but we believe have some level of risk of developing Parkinson's disease during the next few years. And we hope that if we can focus on these individuals, 
ultimately we can identify what are the uh, the different journeys these people take and all, and eventually identify drugs that might actually prevent the onset of disease uh, in addition to treating the symptoms of disease. Uh, so this is, as you can imagine, is a difficult task because we need to involve uh, many thousands of individuals who uh, we can uh, we can ask to participate and and to provide information in order to identify those much smaller number of individuals who we believe might be actually at risk to develop uh, Parkinson's disease. Thank you, Dr. Merrick. And I think, you know, um, this is, your number of thousands is a great way to underscore just how, at the end of the day, clinical research really really relies on um, on individuals volunteering and participating in that research. It's a true partnership between the science and the individual and uh, the individual participant. And when we think about um, volunteers, clearly, we would not be where we are today. The field would not be where it is today without the, the over 1,400 individuals who have participated in PPMI to date. And I'd like to now turn it over to um, Jen and Jerry for uh, for a moment. And I'd like to ask you both um, if you would be willing to share some of the motivations that drove you to participate in PPMI. And maybe um, I'll start with you, Jen, if you, if you wouldn't mind talking to us as one of the first participants to enroll in the study back in 2010, what were some of the drivers that led you to make that decision? Well, I started having symptoms in 2007 when I was living in Virginia, and I was afraid it was Parkinson's, but no one would tell me directly because I was 38 years old and a woman, which was unusual, I guess. And uh, when I moved up to Connecticut, things started advancing, and I found a fantastic neurologist, Dr. Morrow, who, again, well, she told me she thought I had Parkinson's, but she didn't want to diagnose me without sending me to the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disorders, where I met Dr. Russell. And uh, we talked about the prognosis and I was uncomfortable with the way that I was being tested for Parkinson's. And so the conclusion was that I was actually diagnosed by the PPMI study because they had a DAT scan, which proved at the time it was not used for diagnostic purposes. And it was, it proved that I did have Parkinson's. And from there, it was a no-brainer to stay in the uh, program because I was devastated and could not think of any other way to fight this disease by providing data to help cure it. And that was the ultimate motive. It was a little bit altruistic and a lot of my saving my own sanity, giving me a goal to fight for. I think your answer really highlights that it's never, it's probably never one driver of why one makes a decision to participate in research. And there's probably a lot of factors that, that, that come into play. And um, I'm curious, you know, Jerry, having heard Jen's experience, um, what, what was your experience like? What were some of the things that you were contemplating as you thought about um, um, participating in PPMI? No, um, as, as you heard from Sohini's um, introduction, my father 
brother and sister were all Parkinson's victims. Um, that in itself was motivation enough for me to join the PPMI study. Um, not only do I owe it to them and the rest of our family, but it's an opportunity to hopefully um, contribute in some way to, um, to the advancement of, of the research and ultimately positive outcomes. It really was something that I could cling to, uh, something productive that, uh, you know, as Jerry said, that he owed it to his family. It was the best thing in the world for me to feel like I was contributing to something greater than myself. Well, I mean, I, I can speak on, you know, I just want to take a moment to just thank you both um, for, for A, for, for sharing um, that and, and also just, again, for your continued support and participation in PPMI. It is very inspirational. Um, I might just turn things over. Ray, you know, I haven't had a chance to to talk to you yet, but, you know, you clearly are at the front line as um, as one of the um, site personnel study coordinator who often interacts with individuals very early on as they're thinking about whether they want to participate in, in a clinical research study, and in this case, in PPMI. And I'm, I'm just curious, um, you know, what are some of the, the questions that that you get um, as, as you talk to people about this study and, and, and um, you know, and in particular, um, if I could ask you to address one of the things that I know is always of interest to people is the fact that through, through participation in a study like this, you're giving a lot of information about yourself. And people are naturally always concerned about how that information will be safeguarded. So how do you also address the concerns around privacy and, and sort of um, and data, data, safeguarding data and information? Yeah, thanks, Suhini, and, and thanks, everyone. It's nice to join this panel and also to be part of this study since its beginning um, back in 2010. Um, and yes, a lot of great questions there, and, and that definitely opens up the floor to, uh, you know, just a lot of things in terms of uh, what people have questions about and you know, how are we keeping information uh, safe and, and secure, because it is a lot of information that we have to go through. Um, and oftentimes people wonder, you know, what information is going to be uh, clinically relevant versus what information is going to be kept as part of the research. I think, you know, that's another thing that comes up too, but it's important for, for people to know that their information is going to be kept secure. Um, you know, there's a lot of passwords and firewalls and things like that um, that we use at our institutions and hospitals uh, to make sure that the information is kept secure. We also have to make sure that we uh, pass muster with the ethics boards that review these studies. So these aren't just generated out of nowhere. I mean, we have to make sure that what we're doing is correct. So we have regulatory specialists, other scientists, uh, physicians, nurses, people in the community who look at this study and make sure that we're really safeguarding people's information the right way. Uh, it's not being sold to, to other people. Um, and we make sure to code people's information too. So, you know, at a site, we hold on to that information. Um, and then we make sure to code it so that when it's given over to other researchers to look at and analyze, um, they do it in a somewhat de-identified fashion. Um, so when they do 
pull all that data together and they share the results. It's, it's not your personal information that's going to be part of that. Um, and, you know, another question people often ask is, well, how long am I going to be part of this study? Um, you know, as, as Dr. Merrick said, uh, it's over time that Parkinson's changes. And so, yes, it's going to take a bit of time. And, and what we're asking people to do is to commit to five years in this study. And like Jen is doing, she's even participating a bit longer. Uh, she's been part of this study uh, for a long time now. And so we're offering an extension for folks who were part of that original cohort and can I might add um, that I think I've been in this study now um, either five or six years and am obviously continuing. Um, so, you know, hopefully, <laughs> I was going to say this could go on forever. <laughs> and I'd like to be there to do it. I'm actually uh, signed off on donating my brain at the end of it because it's, I would like to provide the most clear package of information. And if they need my tissues for it, then I am all for it because I won't be needing it at that point. I think you both raise, I mean, you know, Dr. Merrick, we, you, you mentioned earlier and Ray referenced this, you know, over time, but I think one of the things we're realizing with PPMI that maybe surpassed our original expectations is that um, just how much more valuable the information is that are contributed by participants, the longer they stay in the study and the longer we can sort of see their individual journey with the disease and compare it to those who may not. And to really start to tease out, um, you know, the, what is going on. And so I'm just curious, you know, listening to this, what are your, your thoughts about the longevity of PPMI and the value of being able to really have this longitudinal data set? Yeah, no, I totally agree that these longitudinal data sets are, are increasingly valuable. And, you know, I always tell people that, you know, every day you participate, your data gets more and more valuable. So Jan is really uh, off the charts here. Uh, and, and I think that, um, I, you know, it's valuable in a number of ways. It's valuable, of course, because we learn what happens to people over time. But I just point, well, let me make one other point in how it's valuable in that way. It's a way of accelerating research because now we have this data. We are collecting all these clinical information and we also are collecting what we call biosamples. We're collecting blood and uh, urine and, and spinal fluid, and those are stored. So when new ideas come up, we can sort of access these biosamples, and we already have all of that information on all of these people over the years to complement those biosamples. And this has really uh, enabled us to really uh, take advantage of new ideas uh, as the study has gone on in 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 a very uh, uh, efficient way, uh, and and I think it's uh, it's really uh, uh, helped us to be really uh, jumpstart a number of different areas in Parkinson's. Yeah, I think one of the things you know I, I hope um, our audience is realizing is what a unique research study PPMI is. I mean, it's designed to try to get in a short-term fashion to some really essential questions to try to drive drug development. But it's also been designed to be this ongoing resource for research so that as new 
ideas come up, we don't have to start over, but that we can actually leverage what has already been built. And I think that's a very unique um, type of infrastructure, if I can call it that, um, in, in the research community. Um, one of the things, if we if we keep moving, is that you know, um, in 2010 when PPMI started, it was a very different world um, than what it is today. And one of the exciting aspects of the expansion of the study is that um, not everything has to occur within a traditional clinical research setting. Um, what most people think of, you know, you go to a site, you meet with someone like Ray, you talk, you have your blood drawn or your other samples are collected that can reference, et cetera. And you do this maybe every six months. Um, the one of the unique things about the expansion of PPMI is actually um, the the launch of an online study component. So whereby um, really anyone over the age of eighteen in the United States and hopefully next year outside of the United States are able to actually contribute information. Um, whenever, wherever they have an internet connection, and to be able to kind of contribute to the study in a in a in a different way, and so um, Dr. Merrick, maybe what I'll I, I might go back to you to sort of talk a little bit about how does this online portion of the of the PPMI study how does it fit within um, some of the other sort of um, components of the study, like the traditional clinical visits that I that I just described. So PPMI Online really complements uh, the more traditional clinical component of the study. PPMI Online has just been launched, very exciting. Uh, and, you know, we're all now much more familiar with going online and, and, and uh, uh, getting information and, and, and uh, you know, buying things we need and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, here we're, what we're asking people to do, anyone who's over 18 is just Go on and pro provide us with some information about you. Uh, based on your responses, we are going to potentially ask you to do some, provide some additional information. But this is a way where we can really kind of broaden the study dramatically, uh, you know, and and uh, enable uh, individuals to participate throughout, now throughout the country, but hopefully throughout the world, uh, and also increase the numbers of individuals who participate dramatically. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we're thinking again to have a, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people on this PPMI online platform that can provide information, and this will really serve two roles. One, it will dramatically ex accelerate our understanding of Parkinson's disease in general, but it also provides us with an opportunity to really uh, identify individuals, as I was mentioning earlier, who might have some additional risk of Parkinson's disease who we might be able to identify and ultimately uh, bring them into uh, uh, a more, you know, the more detailed PPMI study uh, that can uh, help us even further. And I think um, for those of you who may be intrigued by this, I believe that you can actually, um, there's a get started button in the take action box on the bottom right of your screen. So while uh, we definitely don't want to lose your attention for this webinar, you can actually, I think, um, kind of, click that button and explore online um, and uh, and sort of see what that entails. And again, I think, Ken, uh, Dr. Merrick, you referenced a really important um, component, which is that you can get so much information from tens of thousands of individuals. And I'm always reminded by, um, you know, something that Michael has said, which is if you meet one Parkinson's patient, you've met one Parkinson's patient. And 
the journeys and the heterogeneous nature of the disease is such that you really need to learn about everyone's journey with Parkinson's to really tease out, again, the essentials of how we tackle this disease. And I think an online component really just allows us to get to that scale, that, that number of volunteers that we would never otherwise be able to do, which is just so exciting. I was going to say, and just then to reach individuals who might not have an easy access yes. to kind of experts in, in movement disorders. You, this is an opportunity for everyone, at, you know, anywhere now again around the U.S. and hopefully larger to, to participate. And we would encourage you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think the, this, the online component of the study is, is fascinating, and I think we're so excited about the potential of it and what it's going to yield as more and more individuals enroll. But the study itself, the clinical component, again, the part that maybe we're more familiar with, um, is actually also expanding. Um, um, and we're moving actually from over 30 sites from the original iteration of the study when it was launched in 2010 to around 50 sites in 12 countries, um, and really looking to enroll up to 4,000 individuals, which again is really a testament um, to kind of, you know, trying to get as much information from as large a group as we can to really um, hit some of these important questions we need to hit to understand how we can accelerate developing um, therapies. Um, in this particular slide, we talk a little bit about two, you know, while, while the study is open to everyone, and, you know, we just talked about the fact that if you're over 18 in the United States and eventually outside of the United States, you can participate through the online portion of the study. There are some groups that we have um, a particular interest in really making sure that um, they hear this call to action and, and they um, they consider getting involved. And I, I think that the first group I wanted to kind of highlight is the group that we call um, the de novo Parkinson's um, group, which are individuals with Parkinson's disease who were diagnosed within the past two years, so relatively early in the course of their disease and are not yet on medication. And um, again, you know, um, Jen, I'm, I was going to go back to you because in 2010, you you fit this profile and I and you know you you referenced it a little bit that you were at that point in time really um, trying to get to the diagnosis of your disease, etc. Mm -hmm. But um, did you have any concerns about sort of being in that early stage of diagnosis and participating for a research initiative? Was there any concerns? And if there were, how, no. did, how did you mitigate that? Uh, I was not. Uh, I tended to do a lot of things all or nothing. And I was in the process of being diagnosed before I went to the Institute. I was put on medication that scared the life out of me. One made my tears and sweat turn black. Another was hallucinations. And it seemed to me to be an inelegant and kind of crazy way to diagnose an illness by getting this medication. And so when I was presented with the opportunity to uh, help not only confirm the diagnosis scientifically, but to help get around that kind of, I mean, honestly, in some cases, the medication is worse than the disease. And it was, uh, it didn't, I don't even think I really 
thought of it at all. I just, it was something I had to do mm-hmm. because I, I mean, it is, things are culminating to a point for me. I've had to give up a job I love. I'm waiting for disability. It's torture uh, when it advances and it's hard to remain hopeful. And the way I remain hopeful is to try and give back to, if I have to suffer this, then it's gotta mean something. Mm-hmm. And that is the way it means something. And I'll take, you know, the possible privacy implications or uh, odd, you know, lumbar punctures or whatever, although Dr. Russell is excellent at lumbar punctures. I never feel them. But um, it was it was just something I had to do. And I probably should have thought more carefully, but it, it, being in the program saved my sanity on a number of levels. So. Well, thank you. Thank you for being so frank and, and sharing that. Um, yeah. Ray, you know, listening to to um, to to Jen, I'm just wondering, you know, you you interact with a lot of individuals who have just recently been diagnosed and are coming in and talking about the study um, and asking questions about it. And what what are some of the concerns that people who are recently diagnosed might have about study study participation? Yeah, I mean, I I think you you touched on some of that already. Um, you know, obviously, there's some risks there to to anything you're going to do uh, when you participate in research or when you go to have a even a clinical intervention. Um, so one has to consider that and, and really think about uh, how that lines up with uh, you know kind of the risk benefits, so to speak. Do those benefits mm-hmm. really outweigh the risk for you? Um, so yeah, have to talk to a lot of people about that. Of course, there's going to be concerns about. Um, like we mentioned earlier, some privacy concerns, but also, you know, not everyone's used to getting a lumbar puncture done or, you know, uh, having their blood drawn all the, you know, whenever they come in for a visit. So there's, you know, obvious concern about that. And I find that a lot of times that may be rooted in the unknown. The only thing I'm disappointed about is that I don't have superpowers yet. (laughs) Because I've been through a number of so many x-rays and so many injections, I at least could have superpowers. Kind of like right. that radioactive spider that bites you, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, go ahead. Can you give us maybe a little bit of insight? An individual comes in, you talk to them about the study. What can they What can they expect um, when they come in for for um, for that conversation and that first clinic visit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's if it's a first time, you know, we, we've got to go through the consent form. We've got to make sure that people are comfortable. They've gone through it. They've asked all the questions they possibly can, uh, and then we go ahead and we sign that, and then we move forward with um, some study activities, whatever it is we have to do. Um, you know, again, that's going to run the range of things. Um, you know, so so that first time we also these days, like we said, we're in a pandemic, so we're still trying to move this thing forward. So we still have to ask people about COVID and make sure that we're taking all the right precautions. Um, so our teams are fully vaccinated, um, but you know we're asking all people to come. Uh, we're asking people of all different backgrounds. Um, we need di- diverse populations of folks. Um, 
uh, you know, as many people stepping up to the plate as possible to be part of this. But so when they come in, besides checking all those things out, we do like to have some fun along the way. Um, <laughs> Got to do that. Uh, but, you know, we are going to take folks through a bunch of exams. You know, there's a physical exam, a neuro exam, something focused on Parkinson's where we have people tap just like they might do with their doctor or might expect to do if they were being evaluated for Parkinson's. Um, yes, we do have to do the samples. So, you know, there is some blood draws and collecting urine. And um, now the screening visit, we're just seeing to make sure that that's a safe thing to do, all these other things that we might be doing. So we're really at that first visit, just making sure that you're safe, um, that this is appropriate for you. If it's not appropriate for you, we're not going to move ahead with this. Um, and then we can move to baseline and other visits where we might be doing a DAT scan, which would help us identify those dopamine levels or whether they're off or not, um, as, as they can be in Parkinson's and doing an MRI. Um, and also we're doing some cognitive testing with folks too. I like to call brain games, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the fun way of looking at it, but, uh, you know, we're testing memory, attention, language, and other things. So um, even smell testing, we do that too. It's a little scratch and sniff. Um, so, you know, it's one of those hallmarks in Parkinson's um, where people do tend to lose their ability to identify smell um, on the same level they were prior to, ex you know, showing symptoms of Parkinson's, um, which we always think is, you know, an interesting way to kind of track this and uh, see who might uh, have Parkinson's, even though just because you've lost your sense of smell doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go on to get Parkinson's, but it is one of those hallmarks there. I'd like to piggyback on um, your uh, outline of what you might expect. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun, um, <laughs> especially the cognitive portion. I mean, who knew about smelling and tasting and, and as you say, the brain games, which I failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you don't know that because nobody tells you. Anyway, um, it it was was and continues to be a really really worthwhile experience. Discounting, you know, the prodding and the poking and the whatever else uh, in the imaging, it it is it is an extraordinarily. Um, painless, if you will, experience. And the people that I've been in contact with for my, you know, uh, twice yearly evaluations um, have been just terrific, just super. And, and they, couldn't, they couldn't make it more user-friendly. So I, I thought I would just add to what you've already outlined. The only thing that I could recommend is you ch change up the brain games because I've done them for so long I could do them in my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> we will note that down. But, you know, Jerry, this is a great, um, you know, I wanted to, to turn to you because um, the other, um, you know, the, the other um, group that we are particularly focused on within Parkinson, within PPMI, are, um, you know, individuals can reference, uh, Dr. Merrick referenced this earlier, um, individuals who might help us better understand risk and who might go on to develop Parkinson's and 
um, who doesn't and why. And um, one of the components of risk clearly is a is family heritage or family history of Parkinson's disease. And I and I was curious. You you mentioned this a little bit in your in in your earlier remarks about. Um, the fact that your family members had Parkinson's, that it was a motivator for you. And I'm just curious, did you think about, about risk for yourself? And, and did that come into play as you, you thought about, uh, about PPMI and, and providing that information um, for research? You mean in terms of participation? Yes. Not for a moment. Uh, you know, <clears throat> in my, my case, my, 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 family situation, um, selfishly speaking, uh, it seems to me that I'm somewhat of a miracle. Um, <laughs> and and I'm, in an odd sort of way, grateful. Um, on the other hand, it, it um, you, in my situation, you know, personally speaking, um, I'm obligated to participate in this program. Um, there was never um, there was never any sort of hesitation, um, and there hasn't been since. Um, it, it just it, I have to say for those who are out there who are considering. Um, being part of this program, the best way I can describe it for myself is that it's been a slam dunk. Oh, that that is great to hear um, that it's been such a positive experience. And, you know, I think, again, um, it, it's it's so important that this study obviously yield information that helps us with research, but we also want this this study to to have an impact for those who are involved. And I think, um, Jen and Jerry, you, you certainly show the fact, you certainly highlight that participation yields its own benefits um, in, in this particular research study, um, which is, I think, really a, a powerful a powerful sentiment. I wanted to add that, uh, you know, I think it, it you know the participants are are you know, are really partners in the research effort. This this research is not possible without participants, uh, and you know we we hope that it is an enjoyable experience, and we rely on 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 you to participate and to give us information and uh, and and tell us how you know how the study is affecting you. But you know it's it's really nice to hear from you both that you know that this has been a a positive experience. We that that's really the idea, and again, it's it's entirely dependent upon the participation of people like yourselves. Yeah. So if if we keep um, if we keep moving, um, I wanted there was actually a question from the audience about what PPMI has accomplished to date, and it's a great segue into this um, this next slide and really the impact that PPMI has had in the past eleven years. And you know, I I made a few allusions to it earlier, but um, Ken, maybe uh, or Dr. Merrick, um, so I used to call you Ken, but Dr. Merrick, may I maybe turn it over to you to kind of maybe give us a brief um, summary of what, what are some of the highlights that have come out of PPMI um, since it launched? Sure. So, I mean, uh, PPMI has really been, uh, you know, very, uh, I, you know, a, help, a game changer for Parkinson's research. 
uh, and in in a number of ways. One is that uh, we have been over the last uh, now decade uh, collecting both uh, clinical data, uh, imaging data, biosamples, and all of these data have really uh, been uh, widely utilized and helped, and we've helped to accelerate uh, a number of clinical trials that are ongoing and developing. Uh, and, and this really was the goal of PPMI from its start, is to really work with pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, to enable them to more rapidly bring drugs to clinical studies and, and hopefully again uh, into clinical practice. I think that's really an important issue. I, I think it's also been important because one of the goals of PPMI from its start was to develop sort of standardized approaches to collecting information. So the way we collect data or the way we collect samples, the way we do all of the work that we do has become a model for other groups. And, and now we can actually look at this more carefully. Uh, whoops, I think my, uh, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being asked by my Alexa to, uh, to answer some questions, I apologize. Uh, and, um, and I think the third thing, I think that's so important about PPMI is that from the start, it has been an open source data. All of the information is available to researchers around the world. Uh, and millions of people have taken advantage of this. So millions of researchers have got these data to do their own work and advance the field. And I think that might seem like, you know, very straightforward. Why wouldn't everybody do this? Uh, if you, why, it would seem like a natural way uh, to, uh, to do research, but it's actually a very different from the way research had been done prior to uh, PPMI. And now it is becoming more of a standard. And really, I think, again, stands to uh, accelerate research uh, and you know get new new ideas uh, into clinical studies and into practice more more effectively. I was pleased that it was non-proprietary data that it didn't belong to one company and that anyone can access it as you would study. That was important to me. Um, and it isn't proprietary. That's a really good point. This is a pre-competitive consortium. This is what the Fox Foundation has achieved. Uh, you know, they have brought, you know, 30-plus uh, groups together, all of whom have agreed that it is in everyone's interest to collect this information so everyone can benefit from it. And that's really, uh, you know, the way it should be, but it's also an unusual situation. Yes, it's it's not. Unfortunately, it's yet still not the norm for 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 science and for research. Um, I think we're going to we want to leave enough time to address some of the the questions that the audience has posed. So, um, if we if we move to the to the la to the next slide, I just wanted to reiterate again that um, you know this is hopefully um, you know you could take that you could um, you could glean that this is a really um, I think unique study with whose whose impact is enormous in terms of what it could do for inter, uh, for us in terms of understanding the disease and eventually perhaps one day preventing the disease if we can better understand the risk and who may go on to develop Parkinson's. And so, um, you know, we wanted to just remind you all that if, if, if you are interested in learning more about this study and um, if you've been recently diagnosed with Parkinson's, you can click on the resource link to a resource list to find a site near you. And if you're over 18 and living in the U.S., 
less um, and, and may or may not have Parkinson's, but you also are interested in joining, consider PPMI online. And again, there is a, um, the, you can click on the Get Started button in the Take Action box on the bottom right of your screen. But what I'd love to do right now is segue a little bit into um, some of the questions that we've gotten from the audience over the course of the conversation. And I might um, actually um, go back to you, Dr. Merrick, because we had a question here about risk and talking about risk and, um, you know, sort of the fact the study is looking to address it. Could you talk a little bit about what we know about risk right now about Parkinson's, uh, risk for developing Parkinson's, and what do we actually hope the study will tell us? Uh, how will that um, increase our knowledge about risk? Absolutely. This is a really tricky subject because on the one hand, uh, uh, we would like to identify you know, individuals who have some risk, but of course, even some risk doesn't mean you're going to get Parkinson's disease, uh, and we don't want to make people anxious or, or, or concerned. Uh, but I think what we've learned over time is that we can identify uh, uh, certain, you know, uh, events that occur even before the typical symptoms of Parkinson's disease occur. Some of these are related to uh, you know, different uh, biochemical changes that occur. Some of these are, are related to different changes we can detect by imaging. Some of these are just different symptoms people get. So I think, uh, you know, as an example, one type of symptom that people can get prior to the onset of Parkinson's disease is, uh, is that they uh, have a loss of their sense of smell. And as Ray was saying earlier, while it is true that most people with Parkinson's disease have a loss of sense of smell, most people have a loss of sense of smell are never going to get Parkinson's disease. So what we're trying to do is kind of collect all these bits of information and develop a better tool to be able to provide people with an accurate assessment of what their risk might be uh, and learn uh, from those people who are at risk uh, whether we can intervene at an earlier stage uh, and ultimately, as, as we were saying earlier, uh, prevent uh, the onset of Parkinson's disease uh, moving forward. Thank you, Ken. Ray, there were some questions that came out um, while you were talking a little bit about what to expect in a study visit and if you came to the site. And um, the first question was, when do, does one have to commit to doing um, everything in PPMI if you enroll in the study? That's a good question. Um, you know, obviously, that's that's our goal is is for folks that will want to commit to everything. And and usually, it's you know, someone's asking that question out of the fear of the unknown. You know, what what is what is a lumbar puncture? What does that have to do? Um, what's the level of radiation I might experience going through scans and things like that? Um, and we, that's where we have very well built together uh, consent forms to read ahead of time, so that you really are very informed about what's going on. Um, but yeah, in terms of doing all of the testing, that's our main goal. But um, I think for some folks, um, as long as uh, we do attempt to try to do all of the testing, um, if for some reason there's maybe a one-off here that we can't do with a person um, for a particular reason, we kind of take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, we could work through that and see if um, you know it, they're just we have to take a, an alternative route, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, for example, we've had people with scoliosis participate in the study. And um, for those of you who don't know, scoliosis is that curve to the back and not great for, 
for just doing a blind lumbar puncture. So we do fluoroscopy. We do a specialized procedure and we go right in and right out. If I may, let me interrupt there. I have scoliosis. Um, and um, so I guess my situation uh, accounts for what you've just said. And so the 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 diagnostics, well, not the, 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 the testing takes a different approach. Mm-hmm. You got Because it. of the scoliosis. Right. Exactly. Perfect example. <laughs> um, and Ray, there was another question, which um, I think you probably also receive over the course of talking to um, participants or potential participants, which is, can I join PPMI if I'm in another Parkinson's clinical trial um, testing a new treatment? And I think one of the, the one of the situations we're confronted on confronted with today, which is not a bad thing, it's a good thing, but it's challenging, is that there's actually a lot of clinical trials happening in Parkinson's, which is wonderful, but it does mean that, um, you know, we're, we're all looking for participants. So when you get that question, ha, ha, what's the answer? Yeah, that's great. It, it's not a simple answer either. <laughs> I wish it was, but it's a great it's a great question because we want people to really participate in research. There is a lot going on, so it really depends on the kind of research that person's participating in. If they're participating in something where it's levodopa based, it's maybe an approved medicine. Um, like that for Parkinson's, and they're testing out a different feature of it, um, we would say no, because we don't want people on approved medicine for Parkinson's. But when there's the case of maybe an experimental, a new therapeutic that's out there, um, say an anti-diabetic medicine, which you know right now it doesn't have an indication for Parkinson's, um, but if that's a particular trial that they were interested in or participating in, that wouldn't exclude them from participating in PPMI. They would be able to do both. And in some cases, there is some overlap between the kinds of testing that we do in each study. And some of the information, um, Mm -hmm. thankfully due to open channels and and how the research works, um, that information, the person can agree to share that information um, where it needs to overlap. For example, DAT scan, they won't have to redo a DAT scan to be part of PPMI or vice versa, depending on some criteria there to make sure it it all works out. Um, Or even a study and exercise, for example, that's an intervention. Um, But right now we haven't concluded that, yes, definitely this is, you know, a cure, it slows progression, but we're looking at that. How, how, what is the impact of exercise to a great degree, even though we know it improves quality of life, but can we say it slows progression? And we're looking for markers of that, Um, you know, inflammatory markers, uh, biomarker type uh, things in the blood and, and uh, through imaging even. So so the, there's no short answer to that. We, we want people to participate in multiple studies if they can, uh, and if they're participating in a study that, that is allowed. Go ahead, Jen. I was just gonna say, uh, I was worried when I got, I had in 2015 bilateral DVS, deep brain stimulation. And I was concerned that it would make disqualify me from the study, and it didn't. So there is some leeway. Can, can I add to that? Um, both my father and brother had deep brain stimulation procedures. Um, my father um, was one of the originals in that whole um course of treatment way back in the 60s and um, they 
they both experienced um, both positive and not positive results. But they, they were anxious to participate um, for the hope of a positive outcome. I was going to I was going to encourage people who are asking these questions about, you know, do they need to do everything? Can they be part of clinical trials? You know, I, which we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. So I would I would bring these questions to if you're near a clinical site or you want to call someone and and let's see let's see if there's a way to to, to enable that to happen. Uh, so I would I would be uh, you know just to be you know the, our goal is to try to be as inclusive as we can be. Yeah. And I did want to just say there are a lot of questions um, in the chat about how to find out about a site. So if you want to find a PPMI site, the first link in the resources list is a link to recruiting PPMI sites. And for those who may be outside of the U.S., that includes links to sites outside of the U.S. as well. We have um, 12 countries participating, including Canada and sites in Europe and Israel. So definitely um, just wanted to flag that since there seems to be a lot of questions. Um, we have five minutes left, and I think um, I would like to end it, actually, um, by asking um, Jen and Jerry a question. But before I do so, Ken, um, there's some, some more questions about kind of if you can go into a little bit more detail about some of the specific sure. scientific results coming out of PPMI. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I talked a little bit about the broad, uh, the, the broad results, but more specifically, I think really PPMI has been, a, you know, some key results out of PPMI have been uh, the uh, that now we uh, are using uh, dopamine imaging and in, in, in Parkinson's studies, uh, both uh, as tools uh, to uh, identify who gets into the study and as and 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 as a tool to monitor change over time. Uh, PPMI really data has was was uh, was used in order to uh, uh, enable that to happen. That's a key issue. Uh, we're collecting uh, data from. Uh, spinal fluid, as we've discussed, and now we have already shown that there is uh, a, a, an ability to detect uh, synuclein and spinal fluid, and we believe that this may actually lead us to a very valuable kind of a test that can be widely used uh, in uh, in detecting this protein, which we know is affected in uh, in, in Parkinson's. Uh, uh, and, and we can detect synuclein in a, as, as a way of identifying whether people might have uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, we've looked at cognitive changes in Parkinson's disease over time and have added uh, to our expectation and how, what, how we might think about ultimately uh, understanding uh, cognitive impairment in Parkinson's disease. There's really a wide array of, of information that's been collected very that. Uh, spans uh, the gamut from clinical information to uh, biomarker data in blood and spinal fluid to imaging data uh, and genetic data, where we have uh, uh, really had an opportunity to really have detailed uh, discovery of the genetics of everyone in PPMI. And this has really led us to really understand better uh, how individuals with uh, various genetic variants might uh, change with regard to their Parkinson's disease over time. Uh, and potentially has, uh, how therapies might uh, be utilized in those individuals as well. So I'm going to stop there because I know where we want to we want to uh, you know, go back to uh, to Jen and Jerry. But uh, th there is a this is an area where we're very excited about the data that has been acquired and is 
or and is being acquired in uh, in the study. Thank you, Ken, and 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 Jen, Jerry. I want to I want to end it with you by asking the two of you, you know, um, to sort of um, to close us out, so to speak, on this webinar, and by answering sort of, you know, you both are participants in PPMI. If there's one message you would like to leave individuals who've joined us on this webinar, um, what would what would that be? What would you share with them? What would be your 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 last remarks to to all of these people listening to us today? One of the things that I experienced is that a disease like this can make you feel isolated and alone and that you're only going through this by yourself. The study disproves that, gives you someone to reach out to. I've had conversations with other study participants in, uh, in the Institute. The doctors at the Institute are phenomenal. It's made me feel less isolated, and that is a good thing. Thank you, Jen. Jerry? The, the fact that, that those who are out there and have listened to this presentation indicates that there is sufficient interest to maybe want to go forward. Uh, I would encourage you to do so because whatever, uh, wherever this leads, the fact that you have participated will make you feel good. So I encourage you to join us. Thank you. And um, thank you, Dr. Merrick, Jen, Jerry, Ray, for being part of our community and for joining us today. And thank you all for joining us as well, wherever you may be. And we sincerely hope that you found it helpful and informative. Um, we wish you a great rest of the day and a very happy holiday season. And thank you again for joining us. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.